0: This is a continuation of The Face of Imperialism by Michael Parenti. Chapter 2 The Omnipresent Arsenal Like Empires before it The American Imperium needs to muster immense quantities of military might. An empire finds its birth, growth, and perhaps even its eventual death in its force majeure, its irresistible armed power. Born of its own aggrandizement, an empire lives in a world of real or imagined enemies, who must be subdued with force and violence. An Expensive Parasite The Imperial nation conceives of only two kinds of nations beyond its boundaries satellites, or vassal states, and enemies, potential and actual. Among the satellites can be included allies, those lesser powers that remain friendly by staying more or less in line with the Imperial transnational investment policies of large scale capital accumulation. The satellite is a vassal state bonded to the Imperium. Among the enemies, or potential enemies, is any country that seeks to chart an independent and self-defining course, to use its land, natural resources, capital, labor, and markets, for its own development, and possibly for regional hegemony. Each new imperial acquisition creates a broadened perimeter, yet another area to defend against some real or imagined adversary. The empire builders know no rest. They require ever larger budgets and ever more elaborate weaponry. The corporate investors bat non-defense contracts, leaving the taxpayer to bear the crushing costs. In 2009, the Obama administration proposed a stimulus package to counteract the deep recession that afflicted the corporate economy. The package consisted of $787 billion in spending programs, presumably designed to create jobs and stimulate growth. Although one critic noted that the stimulus plan was overloaded with business-friendly tax cuts and too short on labor-intensive projects to put people to work right away. Left unmentioned in the debate over the package is that the U.S. corporate economy has been living off annual stimulus packages ever since World War II. They are called defense expenditures, Every year, the military spending package is by far the largest item in the discretionary federal budget. As to be expected, these colossal allocations are encouraged by corporate America, first because such expenditures create a military might that boosts corporate global hegemony, and second because military contracts are risk-free, set without competitive bidding or adequate oversight. They come with guaranteed cost overruns and bring in superlative profits. Defense spending does not have to struggle with sluggish consumer demand. There are always more advanced weapons to develop, obsolete weaponry to replace, soldiers to feed and shelter, and new wars to be fought. These, then, comprise the two basic reasons why the US assiduously remains an armed superpower, even in the absence of a comparable opponent. First, keeping the world safe for global capital accumulation requires a massive military establishment. Second, a massive military itself constitutes a source of immense capital accumulation. The centrists and liberals dare not challenge these military appropriations for fear of being seen as faltering in their devotion to keep America strong. Obama's 2009 stimulus package was heavily contested because it was for civilian economic purposes rather than for empire and war, in contrast to the huge 2010 defense spending bills that Congress passed with relatively little debate. The enormous national debt the United States carries, and the heavy tax burden the public bears in servicing that debt, is largely an outgrowth of the gargantuan sums expended on wars and military budgets, the cumulative multi-trillion dollar expense of maintaining a growing global empire for the past 60 years or more. Some reactionaries argue that the debt is caused mostly by social security payments and other entitlements, all of which threaten to go broke in some years ahead. In fact, over the past half-century or more, the Social Security Trust Fund has been self-sufficient, taking in more money than it spends. By 2010, it contained an accumulated $2.6 trillion surplus. Qui Bono Numbering among the victims of imperialism are the common people of the imperial nation itself, those who pay the costs of empire with their blood and taxes the Empire feeds off the Republic. The populace does without essentials, so that the patricians can pursue their far-off plunder. The center is bled so that the perimeter can continue to expand. By 2011, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq had cost over 5,000 American lives, along with tens of thousands more wounded or disabled, and hundreds of thousands of Iraqi and Afghani deaths. Suicide rates among U.S. veterans from those two wars remained dramatically higher than in the rest of the U.S. population. Mental health breakdowns were now the leading cause of hospital admissions for the military, higher than physical injuries. On any given night, tens of thousands of homeless veterans were living on our nation's streets. As we moved deeper into the Great Recession, almost every state and municipality in the United States was facing a budget crisis, with serious shortfalls in revenues, record debts and harsh cutbacks in human services. But one component of government, the Defense Department, suffered no shortage of funding. In 2010, the Pentagon and related agencies expended somewhere between $850 billion to $1 trillion if we count the indirect costs of war and empire, such as veterans benefits and medical costs, annual debt payments due to military spending, covert military and intelligence operations the 70% of federal research and development funds that goes into the military, supplementary appropriations for specific wars as in Iraq and Afghanistan, and defense expenses picked up by non-military agencies including defense-related activities of the General Services Administration along with the Energy Department's nuclear weapons programs, which consumes more than half of that department's budget. This was a vastly larger sum than what all 50 states of the union together spent on education, housing, police, firefighting, roads, hospitals, human services, occupational safety, and the like. With only 5% of the world's population, the United States now accounts for almost 50% of the world's military spending. In second place is China, with 6.6% of the world's expenditure on arms. In the past decade, the U.S. allocated over $6 trillion on war and preparation for war. 40% of the U.S. military budget goes for overhead. One critic notes that the Pentagon cannot account for much of its funds, property, and supplies. It cooks its own books to make them appear in balance, and it makes new spending decisions based on the phony data. Many years of reports by the Government Accountability Office and the Pentagon's own Inspector General testified to this. Along with immensely profitable war contracts comes increased income inequality and the defunding of public services. The impoverishment of public services is not only one of the costs of empire, it is one of the goals. The imperial rulers wage war not only against people in foreign lands, but against their own populace as well, diminishing their demands, expectations, and sense of entitlement there are those who say that empires are economically irrational affairs because they cost more than they bring in. The British spent more in India than they were able to extract, and they extracted quite a bit. So too with the Americans in the Philippines and in Central America. But the people who pay the cost of empire are not the same as those who reap its rewards. As Thorstein Veblen pointed out in 1904, The gains of empire flow into the hands of the privileged business class, the large overseas investors, while the costs are extracted from the general treasury, that is, from the industry of the rest of the people. The same has been true in regard to Iraq. US taxpayers have carried the costs and are paying the debt that the war brought, while Halliburton, Blackwater, and a hundred other corporations reap the fat, no-bid contracts and corrupt dealings, almost all of it not audited. Global Military Dominance If U.S. policy is respectful of other people's sovereignty and needs, then we might wonder why U.S. leaders find it necessary to engage in a relentless push for global military domination. Since the 1990s, they have been guided by various versions of a policy plan put together by Dick Cheney, soon to become U.S. Vice President, with Paul Wolfowitz and Colin Powell, who respectively became Secretaries of Defense and State. The agenda was for the united states to exercise unilateral rule over the world as one writer put it the plan calls for the united states to maintain its overwhelming military superiority and prevent new rivals from rising up to challenge it on the world stage it calls for dominion over friends and enemies alike it says not that the united states must be more powerful but that it must be absolutely powerful The United States presides over an armed planetary force of a magnitude never before seen in human history. As listed by the Department of Defense, this force includes over a half million troops stationed at over 700 military bases around the planet and many more within the 50 states, including numerous secret ones that go uncounted, along with unusually large bases recently constructed in Central Asia, Iraq, Colombia, and Kosovo. In 2009, a democratically elected progressive government in Ecuador closed down the last U.S. military base on its soil, claiming it was a violation of that country's sovereignty. Both Ecuador and Bolivia now have a ban on foreign bases written into their constitutions. The US global war machine boasts an arsenal of over 5,000 strategic nuclear warheads and 22,000 tactical ones, along with a naval strike force greater in total tonnage and firepower than all the other navies of the world combined, sailing every ocean and making port at every continent. Bomber squadrons and long-range missiles can deliver enough explosive force to cripple the infrastructures of entire countries anywhere on the globe. U.S. Rapid Deployment Forces have a firepower and conventional weaponry vastly superior to any other nation's force. Satellites and U.S. spy planes conducted surveillance that blankets the entire planet. Recent years brought a skyrocketing increase in military spending for the War on Terrorism. By 2011, the Obama administration was planning to deploy, on U.S. soil, a new class of weapon capable of reaching any corner of the planet in less than an hour. The weapon will deliver a conventional warhead of enormous explosive force at pinpoint accuracy and phenomenally high speed, mimicking the destructive impact of a nuclear warhead and greatly diminishing America's reliance on its nuclear arsenal. The Pentagon has also developed an arsenal of space weaponry that runs the risk of sparking an arms race in outer space, including the unmanned X-37 space plane now circling Earth. The goal is to develop space vehicles that can hit terrestrial and outer space targets, including satellites, and send reconnaissance and attack drones back into the atmosphere. By 2010, the Obama administration had stated its commitment to equitable arms control measures and openness and transparency among nations in conducting operations in outer space, while continuing a claim to use space for national security activities. Despite the development of new weaponry, Washington showed no readiness to diminish its aging stockpile of tactical nuclear missiles in Europe. Requests by several NATO allies to cut back were rejected by the White House. As one reporter noted, many analysts consider these weapons a dangerous relic of the Cold War, expensive to safeguard and deadly if they fell into the wrong hands. In the realm of conventional arms also, the United States has exercised an unmatched global reach, accounting for almost 70% of the world's conventional arms sales. Since World War II, Washington has given hundreds of billions of dollars in military aid to train and equip the troops and internal security forces of more than 80 countries, the purpose being not to defend those nations from outside invasion, but to protect ruling oligarchs and multinational corporate investors from the dangers of domestic insurgency. How do we know this? By observing that, With few exceptions, there is no evidence suggesting that these various regimes have ever been threatened by neighboring countries. There's a great deal of evidence that the US-supported military and security forces and death squads in many of these countries have been repeatedly used to destroy popular reformist movements and insurgencies within the countries themselves, ones that advocate egalitarian, redistributive, leftist politics. Most friendly, recipient regimes have supported the integration of their economies into a global system of corporate domination, opening themselves to foreign penetration on free trade terms, singularly favorable to transnational investors. Note also the Pentagon's wide-ranging incursions into everyday life in America. The military exercises a sensorial role in the making of Hollywood war films, and cultivates connections with the world wrestling entertainment, NASCAR, Starbucks, and companies that deal with everything from iPods to Oakley sunglasses. The military is contractually involved in hundreds of scientific research projects, including such exotic and frightful undertakings as creating cyborg insects that can be remotely controlled and armed with bioweapons. The Pentagon also is devising ways to socialize youngsters into having a receptive, culture of cool response to the military by making friends on MySpace and other cyberspace connections and promotions. After the Red Menace For decades, we were told that a huge military establishment was necessary to contain an expansionist world communist movement with its headquarters in Moscow, or sometimes Beijing. The United States and other Western capitalist nations formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization NATO, in 1949, supposedly to serve as a bulwark against the threat of a Soviet invasion across Europe. Evidence of such a threat was never forthcoming. Still, the NATO Shield was put together, consisting of a massive buildup of military forces throughout Western Europe, operating in effect under the hegemony of the United States but after the overthrow of the soviet union and other eastern european communist nations washington made no move to dismantle nato instead of being abolished nato was expanded to include nations that reached across eastern europe right to russia's border in trying to convince us that we still needed nato policymakers and editorialists let fly a variety of arguments first we heard that nato is a relative bargain since the United States pays only 25% of its cost, as if this spoke to its purpose or political value. Second, NATO can be used as a collective force for interventions without being stymied by a UN veto, as might happen when Washington seeks a United Nations mandate for war and invasion against some country. In other words, the United States has a freer hand operating through NATO than through the United Nations. Thus, when the UN Security Council, because of Russian and Chinese vetoes, refused to cooperate with the destruction of Yugoslavia, Washington just enlisted NATO. Third, we are told by one mainstream newspaper that NATO is committed to defending countries that share a commitment to democracy and free enterprise. Do we still need NATO? Actually, the US public never needed NATO. The Soviet Red Army had neither the interest nor the capacity to invade Western Europe after World War II. State Department studies have admitted as much. Does that mean NATO has been senseless or useless? Not at all. It is a valuable tool to lock the Western European countries into the US imperial system, just as it is now doing to the newly capitalized Eastern European countries. After the overthrow of the Soviet Union and the other Eastern European communist nations, all Cold War weapons programs in the United States continued in production, with new ones being added all the time, including plans to conduct war from outer space. In short time, the White House and Pentagon began issuing jeremiads about a whole host of new enemies, for some unexplained reason previously overlooked, who posed a mortal threat to the United States, including dangerous rogue states like Libya, With its menacing ragtag army of 50,000. The Newly Conjured Menace Since the 1990s, a favorite villain conjured by US rulers to strike fear into the hearts of the American public has been the Islamic terrorist, who supposedly is part of a vast international network named Al-Qaeda headed by the diabolical Osama Bin Laden, master of trained operatives in over 40 countries. No hard evidence of such a wide-reaching coordinated terrorist foe has been found. Usually left unmentioned is how the United States helped organize, finance, and mobilize the Islamic militants to fight a regressive war against revolutionary Afghanistan during the Soviet intervention into that country. To be sure, real terrorists do exist, a sparse scattering of poorly organized grouplets. They must be stopped before they can commit their wanton acts. But this gives no government, not even the one in Washington, license to bomb and destroy whole countries. Such massive military aggression delivers a much greater destruction than anything done by the jihadists and is intended to create, rather than eliminate, Islamic terrorists. This seems to be the view held by Osama bin Laden and his followers, who see themselves involved in a defensive war against a merciless aggressor. They seem less impelled by some blind hatred and envy of America, and more by a desire to get the American Empire off their backs. They hate the Empire because of the terrible things it does to them, their homelands, and their region of the world, bringing them exploitation, death, and destruction on a grand scale. Chapter 2, In the Bag we will resume in the next Menagerie with Chapter 3, Why Rulers Seek Global Dominion. Just a reminder that you can get the Menagerie before the rest of the world, for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash epicincredulity, and for now, comrade, enjoy epoch.